welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes from our first season. On this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories and in some cases, reshared stories inspired by the theme, Coming of Age, stories of growing pains and rites of passage. Both Donna Vasquez and Ben Kemper shared versions of their stories 11 years ago when we first used this theme. Elizabeth Sorensen joins us for the first time. It's story time. Please welcome to our microphone, Donna Vasquez. Okay, so... There's a lot of you in here that inspired me, and I'm going to let you know that, too. Um, My story made me reflect back on what inspired me. And in my coming-of-age story, uh, my grandmother, when I was a child, one of my earliest memories is watching my grandmother at the end of the day sitting in the living room with the sun setting behind her head as she took out her low bun and unfurled this long braid and let it hang at the side of her shoulder. And she proceeded to unfurl this beautiful salt and pepper silver hair. And then the sun came behind her and it looked like a halo. And all I kept thinking was, oh my God, my grandmother is beautiful, beautiful. And that's, that's an early memory of her. So when I turned 21, my first gray hair exposed itself to my hairstylist. (laughs) And I was so excited because I wanted the silver hair. I showed it to a boyfriend, and without my permission, he effing pulled it out. (laughs) I was so mad. And then I thought, wait a minute, there's that saying that I've heard people say in my culture, They say every cana you pull out, a cana is a silver hair. For every cana that you pull out, two are going to grow in its place. So I'm like, all right, dude, you helped speed this process up for me. Thank you very much. And I was okay with it. But it took me years. And so here I am in my early 30s. And I'm married now. And the husband says to me, you're getting old hair. And I'm like, what the heck? I like this gray hair, but I didn't say anything, and I was a people pleaser, and that's what I was in my early 30s, okay? A different person from now. And I went off and I dyed my hair to a stylist. She she was so happy to color my hair. She did it a deep burgundy, reddish color, and the gray was so resistant that she had to reapply it and reapply it. So the grays wanted to stay, too. (laughs) And then... Mid-40s, I divorced that husband, and I ditched the dye. And when I ditched the dye, uh, another man came into my life, and with his support, I was allowed, you know, not allowed, but it felt freeing to let the silver come in. And I was surprised that I only got one negative comment from one family member. Don't let yourself go. And uh, (laughs) no te vas a dejar. And so, oh, no, Vasquez, you're not doing that, are you? And I'm like, yes, I am. And 
I asked my cousins who dye their hair, and they're like, oh, we're not ready for that. We're not ready. We are not ready. Do you know that letting your hair go silver is an inside job? It is what's going on in your mind, in what you're thinking, and how you see people perceive you about being invisible, about aging, about dying. <laughs> and so I accepted the fact that you know, I wanted to be silver and owning it and then telling the story. After I told that story in 2011, people that were in the audience would pull me and see me in the, out on the street and they would thank me for telling that story. And, <laughs> and I ended up saying out loud, I wish I had a dollar for every compliment that I've gotten in all these years because it was year after year. I mean, I'm, t I'm telling you, on a daily basis, I would get pulled in the grocery store, I'd be walking down the street, a lady stopped, pulled it in the side of the road, said, can I take your picture? I want to show my mom that silver hair is cool. And I'm like, okay. And then I had hairstylists stop me and they go, can I investigate your stripes and your, your you know, I want to redo that. I'm getting a bunch of people, younger people coming in and they want silver hair, but they want it to look natural. I'm like, wow, what do you charge for that? <laughs> and I get it for free. And so it was just, I wish I had a dollar for every compliment. And I actually joined some social media groups that supported women that were thinking about going gray or who were already gray. And let me tell you, a lot of people get negative comments, unsolicited negative comments from all people that they don't even know and people that they know that are closest to them. And it's a real tough inside job. It's, it's a lot of women stop and re-dye it again or can't go, with, can't go through with it. And it's an inside job. And so with that process, you end up owning your authenticity. You start to, you get to choose how you want to look. You get to choose your aging process and how you want to age. And I started, so I asked on social media, um, how can I earn money with this, legally, <laughs> with this silver hair? And people said, well, you should model, or you should do this, and so I did. I started to model. And I got gigs here. I've been in three local commercials in Boise since then. Um, I played a 50-something-year-old bride <laughs> who survived cancer, and there she was getting married. Hello. I was in a 67 Mustang, waving, you know. It was fabulous. It really was fun. And then I ended up going with a model management company, and somebody saw my face, and COVID hit. And I ended up getting more jobs in Portland. Underwear. <laughs> I model underwear. Because of my silver hair. Because now all of these businesses, women-owned businesses, they want inclusivity. They want to embrace the aging boomers. Yay! <laughs> so now I'm, you know, um, and I ended up, uh, just last week I was in Portland doing another underwear for the third time. With that same company, they keep bringing me back. I've done face oil for a company in, uh, that's based out of New York and Par uh, San Francisco and Paris. Another uh, company from New York that shot in Portland. Um, 
another one based out of Portland that's a national exercise uh, business. And so they were selling their online exercise. And so I did a full day shoot. Like, they made me look schwitzy and all that good stuff. So it was fun. And I've earned more than all those compliments, more than a dollar for all of those compliments. And in May, you will be seeing me um, in an ad for a major athletic company. I can't say names yet. I'm just going to tell you that I just did it. (laughs) And so own own yourself and keep doing what feels good to you, and all of that will come. It will come because they want the authenticity, and they want you to be you. So I'm doing it. So I wear my hair in two buns, and I unfurl it naturally. (laughs) I get the natural curls. (laughs) Welcome, Elizabeth Sonnerson. So I had a student tell me this really bad joke last month. He said, what do you call someone who's just a little bit Jew? And I knew the answer said, it's Jewish. And he was like, I don't get it. (laughs) His grandfather had told him the story. It's not really a joke, though. It's actually more a description of Jews in the diaspora today. Because there are two types of Jews. There are Jews who are religiously observant to some extent. And there are people who are just culturally Jewish. Well, I was raised Jew-ish. My mother is Jewish from a conservative family in New York. My father is from an Episcopalian family in North Idaho. When my parents were getting ready to get married, my grandmother asked my father if he would consider converting to Judaism. And my father said, why would I go from being a non-observant Christian to being a non-observant Jew? So I grew up dabbling in Judaism. I sometimes went to services with other Jewish families. Uh, Our family lit Hanukkah candles. Um, I went to a Rosh Hashanah service with someone. We always had a Passover Seder. One year we went to New York and we had our Passover Seder with my grandparents and my Ukrainian great-grandmother who didn't want to eat at the table with us because my grandfather was doing it wrong. (laughs) So I wonder what she would have thought of our satyrs at our family that were led by my father, the non-Christian, non-Jew. And we always invited people who were not Jewish because we wanted to give them the experience. (laughs) So I turned 13. And I knew people who were having bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. But we weren't members of a synagogue. We were members of the Ethical Society. And that's where we went on Sundays uh, for non-religious services. So 13 and no bar or bat mitzvah for me. 
A bar or a bat mitzvah happens when you're 13. It simply means, bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. And a Jewish boy who is 13 is automatically a bar mitzvah. Um, but it's celebrated. Boys study, they read the Torah, they have a party. Girls, bat mitzvah is only 100 years old. The first bat mitzvah was Judith Kaplan in March of 1922. So I went off to college, the University of Montana in Missoula, where it was strange to be Jewish in a place where there were not really a lot of Jews. So I looked for the Jews. And we tried to figure out how to be Jewish out in the world without our parents. So I started lighting some Hanukkah candles. <clears throat> and then my junior year of college, someone said, hey, let's have a Passover Seder. I know how to do that. I was the only one who had a Passover Haggadah, which is the book that has how you do a Passover Seder. So a trip to Kinko's, and I was set to lead my first <laughs> ritual observance. And then I graduated from college and got my first job teaching, 1994, South Texas, South Texas, on the Rio Grande, Val in, uh, on the Rio Grande River in a community that was Hispanic at a school that was 100% Hispanic minus three students. And again, I was a fish out of water, so I looked for the Jews. Our counselor was married to a Jewish man, and they invited me to attend services with them at their synagogue for Rosh Hashanah. First year teaching is rough. It's exhausting. It's mentally draining. I had no energy to do anything, but you don't want to sit at home all the time. So what are you going to do? You go to synagogue. Before I knew it, I was there at least once a week. I went to services, special events, uh, classes. And as I did, I started to learn the Hebrew blessings, the prayers by ear. And then I decided, well, I want to learn a little bit more. So I ordered a teach yourself to read Hebrew kit came with flashcards. The first letter you want to learn is the Lamed. It's really tall. It sticks out. And the L sound you can listen for. So I figured out there's Shalom. And then I figured out how God is written. And over time, a couple words at a time, a couple letters at a time, I taught myself to decode Hebrew. And then that first year, at the end of the year, the rabbi said, hey, would you like to teach religious school next year? Why not? <laughs> so I jumped in. I worked hard. I stayed one week ahead of my religious school class. I studied with the rabbi. I was there a couple times a week now. And the rabbi said, hey, would you like to have your bat mitzvah? I was 26 years old. <laughs> and I said, bat mitzvah? <laughs> That's 13, and he said, no, you can do it now. Why not? I'll give it a try. So I worked with the rabbi. I learned to read from the Torah. The Torah doesn't have vowels. You know, English has vowels. Well, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. They're little dots and little dashes above the letters, and the Torah is written without vowels. 
So you really have to kind of memorize your Torah portion. So again, I met with the rabbi. He recorded it on a cassette tape for me. Cassette tapes seem to be a theme tonight. And I listened to the cassette tape, and I memorized my Torah portion. And then we sat and we decided, well, what are you going to do? You have to give a speech. OK, well, what matters to me? Well, what matters to me is there are not a lot of women in the Torah. And I'd like to talk about a woman. So I picked a section with Miriam. And then I had to write a sermon, a drosh, on my Torah portion. And I really kept focusing on the idea that I was doing more than I had to. I didn't have to do this. So there's a Zimbabwean saying, if you can speak, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. And that became the central part. I can do this. I can do more. We had to special order from people that the rabbi knew a preprint copy of an egalitarian prayer book because there wasn't one. And we used that for my bat mitzvah. And so in 1997, I read from the Torah and I gave my talk and I became a bat mitzvah. And then I came to Boise. And I joined Congregation of Havoth Beth Israel, the synagogue here. And then I became a lay leader with the congregation. And then I got married there. And then my kids, when they turned 13, had their bar and bat mitzvahs. And so I went from growing up Jewish through this rite of passage to become fully Jewish. Ben Kemper. Thank you. Growing up means different things for different people. I remember reading in my little junior National Geographic about the Maasai people of Kenya and Tanzania and how they expected their boys, in order to become men, to go out into the wilds and hunt, stalk, and kill a lion entirely by themselves. Now, I never had to do that. But the story stuck with me. I always expected adulthood to come charging at me out of the bush, and it would have teeth and claws and murderous intent. I was attracted to stories like these because when I was six years old, just knee-high to a grasshopper, a woman named Joy Steiner came to my school and changed my life. She was a professional storyteller, and I was so entranced by what she did and how she did it that I started stalking her as a tiny, tiny child from event to event to event. And instead of filling out a restraining order, she took me under her wing <laughs> and taught me the art of storytelling. And this was very difficult for her because Joy and I were very different people. Joy was spontaneous. She could take a story and mold it to an occasion. I had to learn them all by rote. I had to make cassette tapes and listen to them. 
Joy was pugnacious. She always was standing up for herself, standing up for what was right. And I was terribly shy and hated conflict of any kind. And Joy loved children of all sorts, and I didn't. <laughs> I've never liked children. Ever since I was a tiny child, <laughs> they were so loud, so chaotic, so bloodthirsty. <laughs> but under her tutelage, I became a storyteller. I would tell at my school, and I would tell at other kids' schools, and I would tell at museums and libraries and retirement centers. And eventually, the word got out all the way to the ears of a man named Al Blank. Some of you may know him. Al invited me to come tell stories in Shanghai, China. He was the head librarian of an institution called SCIS, Shanghai Community International Schools, which were three different campuses spread throughout the cities of Shanghai and Hongzhou. And they served kids aged kindergarten through 12th grade, seniors in high school that were the children of expatriates who worked in those cities from all over the world. And they had a wonderful education, but they had never seen a storyteller. And Al thought it would be a good idea to bring this skinny kid from Idaho all the way to Shanghai to tell for them. And of course I was terrified, and of course I doubted it, but I thought, this is my chance. This is my metaphorical lion hunt. I will go out into the wilds, and I will come back a storyteller and a man in my own right. <laughs> but little did I know, I would not be meeting a lion out in the wilds. I would be meeting three. The first one found me in the cafeteria. At the first school, they had asked me to stand against the wall of the kitchen and would bring in the grades one by one and line them up on the floor. And I was telling them the story of Stromboli Baboli, the Italian ogre. Stromboli with his hairy, hairy, curly pigtail and his furry, furry legs. And instead of feet, he had hooves. And just as I was getting into the rhythm and the flow of the story, a kid raised his hand from the middle and said, excuse me, what's a hoof? Well, these were kids from all over the world. English was sometimes their second, their third, their fourth language, and I had to stop and figure, well, what is a hoof when you get down to it? <laughs> and as the story was drifting further and further away and I was trying to grasp back to where it was, the dishwasher in the kitchen behind me started up, a colossal dishwasher an industrial dishwasher, a dishwasher that went ang, 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 ang. And while I was trying to get the story back and still figure out what a hoof was, a door opened on the far side of the cafeteria and a troop of kitchen workers came out carrying laden bins full of silverware and plates. And they didn't choose to cross all the way around the seated kids. The first one got right up on the stage and walked right in front of me. And then another, and another, and another. And the story was completely gone from my mind. 
and I was just standing there watching this parade go past me until finally, as one mounted the stage, I turned to her and said, I am Stromboli Boboli the Ogre, and I will eat you up. And she looked at me, and she stepped off the stage, and she led the rest of her fellows all the way around the audience. And was it rude? Yes. And was it inconsiderate? Yes. And was it expedient? Also, yes! First lion defeated! <laughs> the second one I met when I was upgraded to the auditorium to perform for the high schoolers. High schoolers are, are a very difficult audience. Most of them never want you to know that they have enjoyed anything ever at any point in their lives. And I was used to that, even though I had not entered high school myself. I was this weird, awkward, pimply pre-freshman. And I was watching, right where Al is sitting now, a kid front and center, really not enjoying himself at all. He had bright red hair, thick dark glasses, a little chin shrub, and he'd worked himself into a knot of discontent. And when it came time for the question and answer portion, he raised his hand and in a perfect German accent asked me, so, since storytelling is, to all intents and purposes, a dead art form, <laughs> what do you really intend to do with your life when you grow up? Now, I hate conflict. And I could never aspire to be as erudite, as cool, as German as this kid. But he had impugned my honor, impugned the thing that I cared about most of all. So I looked that ginger lion right in the eye, and I planted my feet, and I raised my voice to say, actually, storytelling is going through a renaissance in the United States. There are festivals that draw thousands of people from across the country. Professional storytellers tell in all 50 states. And more than that, people from New York City to my hometown of Boise, Idaho, will come together in a room, and they will share stories with each other. They choose to do this. So I think storytelling is alive and well, and I'm going to keep doing it. And he sunk two inches in his chair. Second lion, vanquished! The third one mauled me. It was my last performance at the last school for the audience that I feared more than any other, first graders. <laughs> and what happened next, I blame entirely on myself because I was so afraid of them that I always chose when going before the first graders to tell big, exciting stories with lots of gestures so that I could keep their attention and keep them as far away from me as possible. <laughs> And I was telling them a folk tale from Nigeria, from the Yoruba, the story of the Oroku man, a giant 
all made out of wood, who stalks the roads at night with his hard, hard Iroku wood club, and likes nothing better to come, than to come up on the unsuspecting and bang, bash them over the head. And the story had gone well, and I was finished, and the first graders hadn't attacked me. And so I was not expecting it when one little boy raised his hands and said, Sir, thank you for the story. Can I give you something? And I said, yes, like a fool. <laughs> and he came up out of his seat, and he walked up to me, and I leaned down to look at him, and he looked me right in the face and said, Bang! went the Oroco Club! And I went down, and the rest of the class rose up and swarmed me. All of them pummeling with their tiny little fists, shouting, Bang with the Oroco Club! Bang with the Oroco Club! Bang with the Oroco Club! The teachers were, of course, on the sidelines, laughing. And I lay there thinking, Is this how I die today? But finally the bell rang, and the swarm lifted up and departed. And I discovered that I was lying there on the floor of their classroom, laughing. It was fine. They were just kids. They were playing a game, something that I had never had the courage to do, inflict violence on a complete stranger. But they had certainly enjoyed the story. <laughs> Third lion, gone. And so I came back to Boise, a storyteller in my own right. And like I promised that German kid, I have kept telling ever since, barring a global pandemic or two. But just a week ago, I was back in a Boise elementary school for the audience that I once feared most, first graders. <laughs> and we got along just fine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.